Chapter Two of Father and Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. Father and Son by Edmund Goss. Chapter Two. Out of the darkness of my infancy, there comes only one flash of memory. I am seated alone in my baby chair at a dinner table set for several people. Somebody brings in a leg of mutton, puts it down close to me, and goes out. I am again alone, gazing at two low windows wide open upon a garden. Suddenly, noiselessly, a large, long animal, obviously a greyhound, appears at one window sill, slips into the room, seizes the leg of mutton, and slips out again. When this happened, I could not yet talk. The accomplishment of speech came to me very late, doubtless because I never heard young voices. Many years later, when I mentioned this recollection, there was a shout of laughter and surprise. That, then, was what became of the mutton. It was not you who, as your Uncle A pretended, ate it up, in the twinkling of an eye, bone and all. I suppose that it was the startling intensity of this incident which stamped it upon a memory from which all other impressions of this early date have vanished. The adventure of the leg of mutton occurred, evidently, at the house of my mother's brothers, for my parents, at this date, visited no other. My uncles were not religious men, but they had an almost filial respect for my mother, who was several years senior to the elder of them. When the catastrophe of my grandfather's fortune had occurred, they had not yet left school. My mother, in spite of an extreme dislike of teaching, which was native to her, immediately accepted the situation of a governess in the family of an Irish nobleman. The mansion was only to be approached, as Miss Edgeworth would have said, through eighteen sloughs at the imminent peril of one's life. And when one had reached it, the mixture of opulence and squalor, of civility and savagery, was unspeakable. But my mother was well paid, and she stayed in this distasteful environment, doing the work she hated most, while, with the margin of her salary, she helped first one of her brothers, and then the other, through his Cambridge course. They studied hard and did well at the university. At length their sister received, in her Ultima Thule news, that her younger brother had taken his degree, and then and there, with a sigh of intense relief, she resigned her situation and came straight back to England. It is not to be wondered at, then, that my uncles looked up to their sister with feelings of especial devotion. They were not inclined, they were hardly in a position, to criticize her modes of thought. They were easy-going, cultured, and kindly gentlemen, rather limited in their views, without a trace of their sister's force of intellect or her strenuous temper. He resembled her in person. He was tall, fair, with auburn curls, he cultivated a certain tendency to the Byronic type, fatal and melancholy. A was short, brown, and jocose, with a pretension to common sense, 
bluff and chetty as a little child i adored my uncle e who sat silent by the fireside holding me against his knee saying nothing but looking unutterably sad and occasionally shaking his warm-colored tresses with great injustice on the other hand I detested my uncle A, because he used to joke in a manner very displeasing to me, and because he would so far forget himself as to chase, and even, if it will be credited, to tickle me. My uncles, who remained bachelors to the end of their lives, earned a comfortable living, E by teaching, A as in something in the city, and they rented an old rambling house in Clapton, that same in which I saw the greyhound. Their house had a strange, delicious smell, so unlike anything I smelt anywhere else, that it used to fill my eyes with tears of mysterious pleasure. I now know that this was the odor of cigars, tobacco being a species of incense tabooed at home on the highest religious grounds. It has been recorded that I was slow in learning to speak. I used to be told that having met all invitations to repeat such words as Papa and Mama with gravity and indifference, I one day drew towards me a volume and said book with startling distinctness. I was not at all precocious, but at a rather early age, I think towards the beginning of my fourth year, I learned to read. I cannot recollect a time when a printed page of English was closed to me. But perhaps earlier still mother used to repeat to me a poem which I have always taken for granted that she herself composed, a poem which had a romantic place in my early mental history. It ran thus, I think. O oh, pretty moon, you shine so bright, I'll go to bid mamma good night, and then I'll lie upon my bed and watch you move above my head. Ah! There a cloud has hidden you, but I see your light shine through. It tries to hide you quite in vain, for there you quickly come again. It's God, I know, that makes you shine upon this little bed of mine, but I shall all about you know when I can read and older grow. Long, long after the last line had become an anachronism, I used to shout this poem from my bed before I went to sleep, whether the night happened to be moonlit or no. It must have been my father who taught me my letters. To my mother, as I have said, it was distasteful to teach, though she was so prompt and skillful to learn. My father, on the contrary, taught cheerfully, by fits and starts. In particular, he had a scheme for rationalizing geography which I think was admirable. I was to climb upon a chair while, standing at my side with a pencil and a sheet of paper, he was to draw a chart of the markings on the carpet. Then, when I understood the system, another chart on a smaller scale of furniture in the room, then a floor of the house, then of the back garden, then of a section of the street. The result of this was that geography came to me of itself, as a perfectly natural, miniature arrangement of objects, and to this day has always been the science which gives me least difficulty. My father also taught me the simple rules of arithmetic, a little natural history, and the elements of drawing, 
and he labored long and unsuccessfully to make me learn by heart hymns, psalms, and chapters of scripture, in which I always failed ignominiously and with tears. This puzzled and vexed him, for he himself had an extremely retentive textual memory, and he could not help thinking that I was naughty, and that I would not learn the chapters, until at last he gave up the effort. All this sketch of an education began, I believe, in my fourth year, and was not advanced or modified during the rest of my mother's life. Meanwhile, capable as I was of reading, I found my greatest pleasure in the pages of books. The range of these was limited, for story-books of every description were sternly excluded. No fiction of any kind, religious or secular, was admitted into the house. In this it was to my mother, not to my father, that the prohibition was due. She had a remarkable, I confess to me still somewhat unaccountable, impression that to tell a story that is to compose fictitious narrative of any kind was a sin. She carried this conviction to extreme lengths. My father, in later years, gave me some interesting examples of her firmness. As a young man in America, he had been deeply impressed by Salathiel, a pious prose romance by that then popular writer, the Reverend George Crowley. When he first met my mother, he recommended it to her, but she would not consent to open it nor would she read the chivalrous tales in verse of Sir Walter Scott, obstinately alleging that they were not true. She would read none but lyrical and subjective poetry. Her secret diary reveals the history of this singular aversion to the fictitious, although it cannot be said to explain the cause of it. As a child, however, she had possessed a passion for making up stories, and so considerable a skill in it, that she was constantly being begged to indulge others with its exercise. But I will, on so curious a point, leave her to speak for herself. When I was a very little child, I used to amuse myself and my brothers with inventing stories, such as I read. Having, as I suppose, naturally a restless mind and busy imagination, this soon became the chief pleasure of my life. Unfortunately, my brothers were always fond of encouraging this propensity, and I found in Taylor, my maid, a still greater tempter. I had not known there was any harm in it until Miss Shore, a Calvinist governess, finding it out, lectured me severely and told me it was wicked. From that time forward I considered that to invent a story of any kind was a sin, but the desire to do so was too deeply rooted in my affections to be resisted in my own strength. She was at the time nine years of age, and unfortunately I knew neither my corruption nor my weakness, nor did I know where to gain strength. The longing to invent stories grew with violence. Everything I heard or read became food for my distemper. The simplicity of truth was not sufficient for me. I must needs embroider imagination upon it, and the folly, vanity, and wickedness which disgraced my heart are more than I am able to express. Even now, at the age of twenty-nine, though watched, prayed, and striven against, this is still the sin that most easily besets me. It has hindered my prayers and prevented my improvement, and therefore has humbled me very much. 
This is surely a very painful instance of the repression of an instinct. There seems to have been, in this case, a vocation such as is rarely heard, and still less often willfully disregarded and silenced. Was my mother intended by nature to be a novelist? I have often thought so, and her talents and vigor of purpose directed along the line which was ready to form the chief pleasure of her life could hardly have failed to conduct her to a great success. She was a little younger than Bulwer-Lytton, a little older than Mrs. Gaskell, but these are vain and trivial speculations. My own state, however, was, I should think, almost unique among the children of cultivated parents. In consequence of the stern ordinance which I have described, not a single fiction was read or told to me during my infancy. The rapture of a child who delays the process of going to bed by cajoling a story out of his mother or his nurse, as he sits upon her knee, well tucked up, at the corner of the nursery fire, this was unknown to me. Never in all my early childhood did any one address to me the affecting preamble. Once upon a time... I was told about missionaries, but never about pirates. I was familiar with hummingbirds, but I had never heard of fairies. Jack the Giant Killer, Rumpelstiltskin, and Robin Hood were not of my acquaintance, and though I understood about wolves, Little Red Riding Hood was a stranger even by name. So far as my dedication was concerned, I can but think that my parents were in error thus to exclude the imaginary from my outlook upon facts. The desire to make me truthful. The tendency was to make me positive and skeptical. Had they wrapped me in the soft folds of supernatural fancy, my mind might have been longer content to follow their traditions in an unquestioning spirit. Having easily said what, in those early years, I did not read, I have great difficulty in saying what I did read. But a queer variety of natural history, some of it quite indigestible, by my undeveloped mind, many books of travels, mainly of a scientific character, among them voyages of discovery in the South Seas, by which my brain was dimly filled with splendor, some geography and astronomy, both of them sincerely enjoyed, much theology, which I desired to appreciate but could never get my teeth into, if I may venture to say so, and over which my eye and tongue learned to slip without penetrating so that I would read, and read aloud, with great propriety of emphasis, page after page, without having formed an idea or retained an expression. There was, for instance, a writer on prophecy called Jukes, of whose works each of my parents was inordinately fond, and I was early set to read Jukes aloud to them. I did it glibly, like a machine, but the sight of Jukes's volumes became an abomination to me, and I never formed the outline of a notion what they were about. Later on, a publication called the Penny Cyclopedia became my daily, and for a long time almost my sole study to the subject of this remarkable work I may presently return. It is difficult to keep anything like a chronological order in recording fragments of early recollection, and in speaking of my reading I have been led too far ahead. My memory does not, practically, begin till we returned from certain visits made with a zoological purpose to the shores of Devon and Dorset, 
and settled, early in my fifth year, in a house at Islington, in the north of London. Our circumstances were now more easy. My father had regular and well-paid literary work, and the house was larger and more comfortable than ever before, though still very simple and restricted. My memories, some of which are exactly dated by certain facts, now become clear and almost abundant. What I do not remember, except from having it very often repeated to me, is what may be considered the only clever thing that I said during an otherwise unillustrious childhood. It was not startlingly clever, but it may pass. A lady, when I was just four, rather injudiciously, showed me a large print of a human skeleton, saying, There! You don't know what that is, do you? Upon which, immediately, and very archly, I replied, Isn't it a man with the meat off? This was thought wonderful, and as it is supposed that I had never had the phenomenon explained to me, it certainly displays some quickness in seizing an analogy. I had often watched my father when he soaked the flesh off the bones of fishes and small mammals. If I venture to repeat this trifle, it is only to point out that the system on which I was being educated deprived all things, human life among the rest, of their mystery. The bare grinning skeleton of death was to me merely a prepared specimen of that featherless, plantigrade, vertebrate, homo sapiens. As I have said that this anecdote was thought worth repeating, I ought to proceed to say that there was, so far as I can recollect, none of that flattery of childhood which is so often merely a backhanded way of indulging the vanity of parents. My mother, indeed, would hardly have been human if she had not occasionally entertained herself with the delusion that her solitary duckling was a signet. This my father did not encourage, remarking with great affection, and chucking me under the chin, that I was a nice little ordinary boy. My mother, stung by this want of appreciation, would proceed so far as to declare that she believed in future time the F.R.S. would be chiefly known as his son's father. This is a pleasantry frequent in professional families. To this my father, whether convinced or not, would make no demur, and the couple would begin to discuss, in my presence, the direction which my shining talents would take. In consequence of my dedication to the Lord's service, the range of possibilities was much restricted. My father, who had lived long in the tropics, and who nursed a perpetual nostalgia for the little lazy isles where the trumpet orchids blow, leaned towards the field of missionary labor. My mother, who was cold about foreign missions, preferred to believe that I should be the Charles Wesley of my age, or perhaps she had the candor to admit merely the George Whitfield. I cannot recollect the time when I did not understand that I was going to be a minister of the gospel. It is so generally taken for granted that a life strictly dedicated to religion is stiff and dreary that I may have some difficulty in persuading my readers that, as a matter of fact, in these early days of my childhood, before disease and death had penetrated to our slender society, we were always cheerful and often gay. My parents were playful with one another, and there were certain stock family jests which seldom failed to enliven the breakfast table. 
My father and mother lived so completely in the atmosphere of faith, and were so utterly convinced of their intercourse with God, that so long as that intercourse was not clouded by sin, to which they were delicately sensitive, they could afford to take the passing hour very lightly. They would even, to a certain extent, treat the surroundings of their religion as a subject of jest, joking very mildly and gently about such things as an attitude at prayer or the nature of a supplication. They were absolutely indifferent to forms. They prayed, seated in their chairs, as willingly as, reversed, upon their knees, no ritual having any significance for them. My mother was sometimes extremely gay, laughing with a soft, merry sound. What I have since been told of the guileless mirth of nuns in a convent has reminded me of the gaiety of my parents during my early childhood. So long as I was a mere part of them, without individual existence, and swept on a satellite in their atmosphere. I was mirthful when they were mirthful, and grave when they were grave. The mere fact that I had no young companions, no story-books, no outdoor amusements, none of the thousand and one employments provided for other children in more conventional surroundings, did not make me discontented or fretful, because I did not know of the existence of such entertainments. In exchange, I became keenly attentive to the limited circle of interests open to me. Oddly enough, I have no recollection of any curiosity about other children, nor of any desire to speak to them or play with them. They did not enter into my dreams, which were occupied entirely with grown-up people and animals. I had three dolls, to whom my attitude was not very intelligible. Two of these were female, one with a shapeless face of rags, the other in wax. But in my fifth year, when the Crimean War broke out, I was given a third doll, a soldier, dressed very smartly in a scarlet cloth tunic. I used to put the dolls on three chairs and harangue them aloud, but my sentiment to them was never confidential, until our maidservant one day, intruding on my audience and misunderstanding the occasion of it, said, What? A boy? I'm playing with a soldier when he's got two lady dolls to play with? I had never thought of my dolls as confidence before. But from that time forth I paid especial attention to the soldier in order to make up to him for Lizzie's unwarrantable insult. The declaration of war with Russia brought the first breath of outside life into our Calvinist cloister. My parents took in a daily newspaper, which they had never done before, and events in picturesque places, which my father and I looked out on the map, were eagerly discussed. One of my vividest early memories can be dated exactly. I was playing about the house, and suddenly burst into the breakfast room, where, close to the door, sat an amazing figure, a very tall young man, as stiff as my doll, in a gorgeous scarlet tunic. Quite far away from him, at her writing-table, my mother sat with her Bible open before her, and was urging the gospel plan of salvation on his acceptance. She promptly told me to run away and play, but I had seen a great sight. This guardsman was in the act of leaving for the Crimea, and his adventures, he was converted in consequence of my mother's instruction, were afterwards told by her in a tract called The Guardsman of the Alma, of which I believe that more than half a million copies were circulated. He was killed in that battle, and this added an extraordinary luster to my dream of him. 
I see him still in my mind's eye, large, stiff, and unspeakably brilliant, seated, from respect, as near as possible to our parlor door. This apparition gave reality to my subsequent conversations with the soldier doll. That same victory of the Alma, which was reported in London on my fifth birthday, is also marked very clearly in my memory by a family circumstance. We were seated at breakfast at our small round table drawn close up to the window, my father with his back to the light. Suddenly he gave a sort of cry and read out the opening sentences from the Times announcing a battle in the valley of the Alma. No doubt the strain of national anxiety had been very great, for both he and my mother seemed deeply excited. He broke off his reading when the fact of the decisive victory was assured, and he and my mother sank simultaneously on their knees in front of their tea and bread and butter, while in a loud voice my father gave thanks to the god of battles. This patriotism was the more remarkable in that he had schooled himself, as he believed, to put his heavenly citizenship above all earthly duties. To those who said, because you are a Christian, surely you are not less an Englishman, he would reply by shaking his head and by saying, I am a citizen of no earthly state. He did not realize that, in reality, and to use a cant phrase not yet coined in 1854, there existed in Great Britain no more thorough jingo than he. Another instance of the remarkable way in which the interests of daily life were mingled in our strange household, with the practice of religion, made an impression upon my memory. We had all three been much excited by a report that a certain dark geometer moth, generated in underground stables, had been met with in Islington. Its name, I think, is Bolitobia fulinginaria and I believe that it is excessively rare in England. We were sitting at family prayers on a summer morning, I think in 1855, when through the open window a brown moth came sailing. My mother immediately interrupted the reading of the Bible by saying to my father, Oh, Henry, do you think that can be Bola Tobia? My father rose up from the sacred book, examined the insect, which had now perched, and replied, no, it is the only the common vaporer, Orgia Antiqua, resuming his seat and the exposition of the word without any apology or embarrassment. In the course of this, my sixth year, there happened a series of minute and soundless incidents which, elementary as they may seem when told, were second in real importance to none in my mental history. The recollection of them confirms me in the opinion that certain leading features in each human soul are inherent to it and cannot be accounted for by suggestion or training. In my own case, I was most carefully withdrawn, like Princess Blancheflower in her marble fortress, from every outside influence whatsoever. Yet to me, the instinctive life came as unexpectedly as her lover came to her in the basket of roses. What came to me was the consciousness of self, as a force and as a companion, and it came as the result of one or two shocks, which I will relate. In consequence of hearing so much about an omniscient God, a being of supernatural wisdom and penetration, who was always with us, 
who made, in fact, a fourth in our company, I had come to think of him not without awe, but with absolute confidence. My father and mother, in their serene discipline of me, never argued with one another, never even differed. Their wills seemed absolutely one. My mother always deferred to my father, and in his absence spoke of him to me, as if he were all-wise. I confused him in some sense with God. At all events I believed that my father knew everything and saw everything. One morning in my sixth year, my mother and I were alone in the morning room, when my father came in and announced some fact to us. I was standing on the rug, gazing at him, and when he made this statement, I remember turning quickly in embarrassment and looking into the fire. The shock to me was as that of a thunderbolt, for what my father had said was not true. My mother and I, who had been present at the trifling incident, were aware that it had not happened exactly as it had been reported to him. My mother gently told him so, and he accepted the correction. Nothing could possibly have been more trifling to my parents, but to me it meant an epic. Here was the appalling discovery, never suspected before, that my father was not as God, and did not know everything. The shock was not caused by any suspicion that he was not telling the truth, as it appeared to him, but by the awful proof that he was not, as I had supposed, omniscient. This experience was followed by another, which confirmed the first, but carried me a great deal further. In our little back garden, my father had built up a rockery for ferns and mosses, and from the water supply of the house he had drawn a leaden pipe, so that it pierced upwards through the rockery and produced, when a tap was turned, a pretty silvery parasol of water. The pipe was exposed somewhere near the foot of the rockery. One day two workmen, who were doing some repairs, left their tools during the dinner hour in the back garden, and as I was marching about I suddenly thought that to see whether one of these tools could make a hole in the pipe would be attractive. It did make such a hole quite easily, and then the matter escaped my mind. But a day or two afterwards, when my father came in to dinner, he was very angry. He had turned the tap, and instead of the fountain arching at the summit, there had been a rush of water through a hole at the foot. The rockery was absolutely ruined. Of course I realized in a moment what I had done, and I sat frozen with alarm, waiting to be denounced. But my mother remarked on the visit of the plumbers two or three days before, and my father instantly took up the suggestion. No doubt that was it. The mischievous fellows had thought it amusing to stab the pipe and spoil the fountain. No suspicion fell on me. No question was asked of me. I sat there, turned to stone within, but outwardly sympathetic, and with unchecked appetite. We attribute, I believe, too many moral ideas to little children. It is obvious that in this tremendous juncture I ought to have been urged forward by good instincts, or held back by naughty ones. But I am sure that the fear which I experienced for a short time and which so unexpectedly melted away, was a purely physical one. It had nothing to do with the motions of a contrite heart. As to the destruction of the fountain, I was sorry about that, for my own sake, since I admired the skipping water extremely, and I had had no idea that I was spoiling its display. But the emotions which now thronged within me, and which led me, with almost unwise 
alacrity to seek solitude in the back garden, were not moral at all. They were intellectual. I was not ashamed of having successfully and so surprisingly deceived my parents by my crafty silence. I looked upon that as a providential escape, and dismissed all further thought of it. I had other things to think of. In the first place, the theory that my father was omniscient or infallible was now dead and buried. He probably knew very little. In this case, he had not known a fact of such importance that if you did not know that, it could hardly matter what you knew. My father, as a deity, as a natural force of immense prestige, fell in my eyes to a human level. In future, his statements about things in general need not be accepted implicitly. But of all the thoughts which rushed upon my savage and undeveloped little brain at this crisis, the most curious was that I had found a companion and a confidant in myself. There was a secret in this world, and it belonged to me, and to a somebody who lived in the same body with me. There were two of us, and we could talk with one another. It is difficult to define impressions so rudimentary, but it is certain that it was in this dual form that the sense of my individuality now suddenly descended upon me, and it is equally certain that it was a great solace to me to find a sympathizer in my own breast. About this time, my mother, carried away by a current of her literary and philanthropic work, left me more and more to my own devices. She was seized with a great enthusiasm. As one of her admirers and disciples has written, she went on her way, sowing beside all waters. I would not for a moment let it be supposed that I regard her as a Mrs. Jellybee, or that I think she neglected me. But a remarkable work had opened up before her. After her long years in a mental hermitage, she was drawn forth into the clamorous harvest field of souls. She developed an unexpected gift of persuasion over strangers whom she met in the omnibus or in the train, and with whom she courageously grappled. This began by her noting, with deep humility and joy, that I have reason to judge the sound conversion to God of three young persons within a few weeks by the instrumentality of my conversations with them. And at the same time, as another of her biographers has said, those testimonies to the blood of Christ, the fruits of her pen, began to be spread very widely, even to the most distant parts of the globe. My father, too, was at this time at the height of his activity. After breakfast, each of them was amply occupied, perhaps until nightfall. Our evenings we still always spent together. Sometimes my mother took me with her on her unknown day's employ. I recollect pleasant rambles through the city by her side, and the act of looking up at her figure soaring above me. But when all was done, I had hours and hours of complete solitude in my father's study, in the back garden, above all in the garret. The garret was a fairy place. It was a low lean-to, lighted from the roof. It was wholly unfurnished except for two objects, an ancient hat-box and a still more ancient skin trunk. The hat-box puzzled me extremely till one day, asking my father what it was, I got a distracted answer which led me to believe that, that it itself was a sort of hat 
and I made a laborious but repeated effort to wear it. The skin trunk was absolutely empty, but the inside of the lid of it was lined with sheets of what I now know to have been a sensational novel. It was, of course, a fragment, but I read it, kneeling on the bare floor with indescribable rapture. It will be recollected that the idea of fiction, of a deliberately invented story, had been kept from me with entire success. I therefore implicitly believed the tale in the lid of the trunk to be a true account of the sorrows of a lady of title, who had to flee the country, and who was pursued into foreign lands by enemies bent upon her ruin. Somebody had an interview with a minion in a mask. I went downstairs and looked up these words in Bailey's English Dictionary, but was left in darkness as to what they had to do with the lady of title. This ridiculous fragment filled me with delicious fears. I fancied that my mother, who was out so much, might be threatened by dangers of the same sort, and the fact that the narrative came abruptly to an end, in the middle of one of its most thrilling sentences, wound me up almost to a disorder of wonder and romance. The preoccupation of my parents threw me more and more upon my own resources. But what are the resources of a solitary child of six? I was never inclined to make friends with servants, nor did our successive maids proffer, so far as I recollect, any advances. Perhaps, with my dedication and my grown-up ways of talking, I did not seem to them at all an attractive little boy. I continued to have no companions, or even acquaintances of my own age. I am unable to recollect exchanging two words with another child till after my mother's death. The abundant energy which my mother now threw into her public work did not affect the quietude of our private life. We had some visitors in the daytime, people who came to consult one parent or the other, but they never stayed to a meal, and we never returned their visits. I do not quite know how it was that neither of my parents took me to any of the sites of London, although I am sure it was a question of principle with them. Notwithstanding all our study of natural history, I was never introduced to live wild beasts at the zoo, nor to dead ones at the British Museum. I can understand better why we never visited a picture gallery or a concert room. So far as I can recollect, the only time I was ever taken to any place of entertainment was when my father and I paid a visit, long anticipated, to the great globe in Leicester Square. This was a huge structure, the interior of which one ascended my beans of a spiral staircase. It was a poor affair that was concave in it which should have been convex, and my imagination was deeply affronted. I could invent a far better great globe than that in my mind's eye in the garret. Being so restricted then, and yet so active, my mind took refuge in an infantile species of natural magic. This contended with the definite ideas of religion which my parents were continuing, with too much mechanical persistency to force into my nature, and it ran parallel with them. I formed strange superstitions which I can only render intelligible by naming some concrete examples. I persuaded myself that if I could only discover the proper words to say, or the proper passes to make, I could induce the gorgeous birds and butterflies in my father's illustrated manuals to come to life, and fly out of the book, leaving holes behind them. 
I believed that when, at the chapel, we sang, drearily and slowly, loud hymns of experience and humiliation, I could boom forth with a sound equal to that of dozens of singers if I could only hit upon the formula. During morning and evening prayers, which were extremely lengthy and fatiguing, I fancied that one of my two selves could flit up and sit clinging to the cornice and look down on my other self and the rest of us if I could only find the key. I labored for hours in search of these formulas, thinking to compass my ends by means absolutely irrational. For example, I was convinced that if I could only count consecutive numbers long enough without losing one, I should suddenly, on reaching some far distant figure, find myself in possession of the great secret. I feel quite sure that nothing external suggested these ideas of magic, and I think it probable that they approached the ideas of savages at a very early stage of development. All this ferment of mind was entirely unobserved by my parents, but when I formed the belief that it was necessary for the success of my practical magic that I should hurt myself, and when, as a matter of fact, I began, in extreme secrecy, to run pins into my flesh and bang my joints with books, no one will be surprised to hear that my mother's attention was drawn to the fact that I was looking delicate. The notice nowadays universally given to the hygienic rules of life was rare fifty years ago, and among deeply religious people in particular, fatalistic views of disease prevailed. If anyone was ill, it showed that the Lord's hand was extended in chastisement, and much prayer poured forth in order that it might be explained to the sufferer, or to his relations, in what he or they had sinned. People would, for instance, go on living over a cesspool, working themselves up into agony, to discover how they had incurred the displeasure of the Lord, but never moving away. As I became very pale and nervous, and slept badly at nights with visions and loud screams in my sleep, I was taken to a physician, who stripped me and tapped me all over. This gave me some valuable hints for my magical practices, but could find nothing the matter. He recommended whatever physicians in such cases always recommend, but nothing was done. If I was feeble, it was the Lord's will, and we must acquiesce. It culminated in a sort of fit of hysterics, when I lost all self-control and sobbed with tears and banged my head on the table. While this was proceeding, I was conscious of that dual individuality of which I have already spoken, since while one part of me gave way, and could not resist, the other part, in some extraordinary sense, seemed standing aloof, much impressed. I was alone with my father when this crisis suddenly occurred, and I was interested to see that he was greatly alarmed. It was a very long time since we had spent a day out of London, and I said, on being coaxed back to calmness, that I wanted to go into the country. Like the dying Falstaff, I babbled of green fields. My father, after a little reflection, proposed to take me to Primrose Hill. I had never heard of the place, and names have always appealed directly to my imagination. I was in the highest degree delighted, and could hardly restrain my impatience. As soon as possible, we set forth westward, my hand in my father's, with the liveliest anticipations. I expected to see a mountain absolutely carpeted with primroses, 
a terrestrial galaxy like that which covered the hill that led up to montgomery castle in don's poem but at length as we walked from the chalk farm direction a miserable acclivity stole into view surrounded even in those days on most sides by houses with its grass worn to the buff by millions of boots and resembling what i meant by the country about as much as poplar resembles paradise we sat down on a bench at its inglorious summit whereupon i burst into tears and in a heart-rending whisper sobbed oh papa let us go home this was the lachrymose epoch in a career not otherwise given to weeping for i must tell one more tale of tears at this time the autumn of eighteen fifty five my parents were disturbed more than once in the twilight after i had been put to bed by shrieks from my crib they would rush up to my side and find me in great distress but would be unable to discover the cause of it the fact was that i was half beside myself with ghostly fears increased and pointed by the fact that there had been some daring burglaries on our street our servant-maid who slept at the top of the house had seen or thought she saw upon a moonlit night the figure of a crouching man silhouetted against the sky slip down from the roof and leap into her room she screamed and he fled away moreover as if that were not enough for my tender nerves there had been committed a horrid murder at a baker's shop just around the corner in the caledonian road to which murder actuality was given to us by the fact that my mother had been just thinking of getting her bread from the shop children i think were not spared the details of these affairs fifty years ago at least i was not and my nerves were a packet of spillikins but what made me scream at nights was that when my mother had tucked me up in bed and had heard me say my prayer and had prayed aloud on her knees at my side and had stolen downstairs noises immediately began in the room there was a rustling of clothes and a slapping of hands and a gurgling and a sniffing and a trotting these horrible muffled sounds would go on and die away and be resumed i would pray very fervently to god to save me from my enemies and sometimes i would go to sleep but on other occasions my faith and fortitude alike gave way and i screamed mamma mamma then would my parents come bounding up the stairs and comfort me and kiss me and assure me it was nothing and nothing it was while they were there but no sooner had they gone than the ghostly riot recommenced it was at last discovered by my mother that the whole mischief was due to a card of framed text fastened by one nail to the wall this did nothing when the bedroom door was shut but when it was left open in order that my parents might hear me call the card began to gallop in the drought and made the most intolerable noises several things tended at this time to alienate my conscience from the line which my father had so rigidly traced for it the question of the efficacy of prayer which has puzzled wiser heads than mine was began to trouble me it was insisted on in our household that if anything was desired you should not as my mother said lose any time in seeking for it but ask god to guide you to it in many junctures of life this is precisely what in sober fact they did i will not dwell here on their theories which my mother put forth with unflinching directness in her published writings 
but I found that a difference was made between my privileges in this matter and theirs, and this led to many discussions. My parents said, Whatever you need, tell him, and he will grant it if it is his will. Very well. I had need of a large, painted, humming top, which I had seen in a shop window in the Caledonian Road. Accordingly, I introduced a supplication for this object into my evening prayer, carefully adding the words, if it is thy will. This, I recollect, placed my mother in a dilemma, and she consulted my father. Taken, I suppose, at a disadvantage, my father told me I must not pray for things like that, to which I answered by another query, why? And I added that he said we ought to pray for things we needed, and that I needed the humming top, a great deal more than I did the conversion of the heathen, or the restitution of Jerusalem to the Jews. Two objects of my nightly supplication which left me very cold. I have reason to believe, looking back upon this scene conducted by candlelight in the front parlor, that my mother was much baffled by the logic of my argument. She had gone so far as to say publicly that no things of circumstances are too insignificant to bring before the God of the whole earth. I persisted that this covered the case of the humming-top, which was extremely significant to me. I noticed that she held aloof from the discussion, which was carried on with some show of annoyance by my father. He had never gone quite so far as she did in regard to this question of praying for material things. I am not sure that she was convinced that I ought to have been checked, but he could not help seeing that it reduced their favorite theory to an absurdity for a small child to exercise the privilege. He ceased to argue and told me peremptorily that it was not right for me to pray for things like humming-tops, and that I must do it no more. His authority, of course, was paramount, and I yielded, but my faith in the efficacy of prayer was a good deal shaken. The fatal suspicion had crossed my mind that the reason why I was not to pray for the top was because it was too expensive for my parents to buy, that being the usual excuse for not getting things I wished for. It was about the date of my sixth birthday that I did something very naughty, some act of direct disobedience for which my father, after a solemn sermon, chastised me, sacrificially, by giving me several cuts with a cane. This action was justified, as everything he did was justified, by reference to scripture, spare the rod and spoil the child. I suppose that there are some children of a sullen and lephatic temperament who are smartened up and made more wide awake by a whipping. It is largely a matter of convention, the exercise being endured, I am told, with pride by the aristocracy, but not tolerated by the lower classes. I am afraid that I proved my inherent vulgarity by being made not contrite or humble, but furiously angry by this caning. I cannot account for the flame of rage which had awakened in my bosom. My dear, excellent father had beaten me, not very severely, without ill-temper, and with the most genuine desire to improve me. But he was not well advised, especially so far as the dedication to the Lord's service was concerned. This same dedication had ministered to my vanity, and there are some natures which are not improved by being humiliated. I have to confess with shame that I went about the house for some days with a murderous hatred of my father locked within my bosom. He did not suspect that the chastisement had not been wholly efficacious, and he bore me no malice, so that after a while I forgot and thus forgave him.
but i do not regard physical punishment as a wise element in the education of proud and sensitive children my theological misdeeds culminated however in an act so puerile and preposterous that i should not venture to record it if it did not throw some glimmering light on the subject which i have proposed to myself in writing these pages my mind continued to dwell on the mysterious question of prayer it puzzled me greatly to know why if we were god's children and if he was watching over us by night and day we might not supplicate for toys and sweets and smart clothes as well as for the conversion of the heathen just at this juncture we had a special service at the room at which our attention was particularly called to what we always spoke of as the field of missionary labor the east was represented among the saints by an excellent irish peer who had in his early youth converted and married a lady of color this Asiatic shared in our Sunday morning meetings, and was an object of helpless terror to me. I shrank from her amiable caresses, and vaguely identified her with a personage much spoken of in our family circle, the personal devil. All these matters drew my thoughts to the subject of idolatry, which was severely censored at the missionary meeting. I cross-examined my father very closely as to the nature of the sin, and pinned him down to the categorical statement that idolatry consisted in praying to anyone or anything but God himself. Wood and stone, in the words of the hymn, were peculiarly liable to be bowed down to by the heathen in their blindness. I pressed my father further on this subject, and he assured me that God would be very angry, and would signify his anger, if any one in a Christian country bowed down to wooden stone. I cannot recall why I was so pertinacious on the subject, but I remember that my father became a little restive under my cross-examination. I determined, however, to test the matter for myself, and one morning, when both my parents were safely out of the house, I prepared for the great act of heresy. I was in the morning room on the ground floor where, with much labor, I hoisted a small chair onto the table close to the window. My heart was now beating as if it would leap out of my side, but I pursued my experiment. I knelt down on the carpet in front of the table, and looking up I said my daily prayer in a loud voice, only substituting the address, O chair, for the habitual one. Having carried this act of idolatry safely through, I waited to see what would happen. It was a fine day, and I gazed up at the slip of white sky above the houses opposite, and expected something to appear in it. God would certainly exhibit his anger in some terrible form, and would chastise my impious and willful action. I was very much alarmed, but still more excited. I breathed the high, sharp air of defiance. But nothing happened. There was not a cloud in the sky, not an unusual sound in the street. Presently, I was quite sure that nothing would happen. I had committed idolatry, flagrantly and deliberately, and God did not care. The result of this ridiculous act was not to make me question the existence and power of God. Those were forces which I did not dream of ignoring. But what it did was to lessen still further my confidence in my father's knowledge of the divine mind. My father had said positively that if I worshipped a thing made of wood, God would manifest his anger. I had then worshipped a chair, 
made or partially made of wood, and God had made no sign whatsoever. My father, therefore, was not really acquainted with the divine practice in cases of idolatry, and with that, demissing the subject, I dived again into the unplumbed depths of the Penny Cyclopedia. End of chapter 2, read by Alana Jordan.